to the drug epidemic, right, to city services in certain cases just collapsing, was to give up on the black power agenda of an earlier generation and to say, look, let's just get black leadership in there that can make the city work. My older brother, Leonard Peltier, who was the kindest person that I ever met, you know, he took care of us. He took care of uh, the women and children. He provided food provided counsel to the young men around the community. I don't think that they really see it yet, that this is displacement, it's discrimination, and that they want to push black people out of the city. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Rivera. Today, part two of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. This year marks the half-century anniversary of the call for black power in this country in 1966. At that time, liberation movements in Africa, Asia, and the Americas were rising up against colonialism and all forms of capitalist, European, and American hegemony. In part one last week, we explored black economic power in the District of Columbia, and we continue that focus today with a look at housing and gentrification with professor and author George Derek Musgrove and Barry Farms tenant organizer Detrice Belt. So, you know, we have a lot packed into in this less than an hour. And before we go to Black Power 50 Years in D.C., here are our headlines. The Save McMillan Park Coalition is claiming victory today after the D.C. Court of Appeals rejected on Thursday the D.C. Zoning Commission's approval of a $720 million project to bulldoze the historic site in northwest D.C. and create a large retail office and condominium complex. The court ruling came after city officials hurried with a ceremonial groundbreaking at the park one day earlier. Daniel Walkoff, an organizer with Save McMillan Park, said that the organization is fighting to save green open space and the historical significance of the park, which also includes underground water filtration galleries. Several events and actions, including an encampment outside the White House, are being held to urge President Obama to provide executive clemency to Leonard Peltier, the Native American freedom fighter who has been in prison for decades after being convicted of killing FBI agents. But human rights activists around the world consider Peltier to be a political prisoner. Chantel James attended a press conference yesterday and filed this report. With little over one month left until President Obama leaves office, activists and members of the public gathered at the National Press Club on Wednesday to champion the freedom of Leonard Peltier, the Native American activist who was falsely accused of killing two FBI agents and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences 41 years ago. 
There was a panel composed of Cynthia Dunn, Leonard Peltier's attorney and a former federal prosecutor, Justin Mazzola of Amnesty International USA, John Dulles, former regional director of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, Gene Roach and Norman Patrick Brown, survivors of the incident in Oglala, as well as Chauncey Peltier, Leonard's oldest son. Panelists outlined the details of the case, which may be one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in the U.S. judicial system's history. They stressed the need for President Obama to finally pardon Peltier so that he can spend his last years with his family. Norman Brown shares his memories of Peltier. My older brother, Leonard Peltier, who was the kindest person that I ever met. You know, he took care of us. He took care of uh, the women and children. He provided food. He provided counsel to the young men around the community. The reason why I'm here is I believe that he didn't have that ability. He didn't have that heart to do what he's been accused of. To ask for clemency for Leonard Peltier, you can call the White House at 202-456-1111 or 202-456-1414. This is Chantal James reporting from the National Press Club for On the Ground. Also, actions continue in support of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation and against the $3.8 billion Dakota Access Pipeline. Even after news earlier this week that the Army Corps of Engineers has denied the permit for drilling beneath water sources, including the Missouri River, which provides drinking water for millions. The stand with Standing Rock, no DAPL, March on Washington, kicks off tomorrow, Saturday, December 10th, 2016, at 2 p.m. from Freedom Plaza here in northwest D.C., and will go through the National Mall and over to the National Museum of the American Indian. There are protests being organized around the world on tomorrow, December 10th, in honor of U.N. Human Rights Day. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016, with Professor George Derek Musgrove. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, this year marked the 50th anniversary of the call for black power in this country in 1966. And next is the second in a series of segments this month that will explore black power 50 years in D.C., 1966 to 2016. Today, housing and gentrification. Between 2000 and 2015, the district's population expanded by 100,000 people to a total of 672,000 roughly, and that was the first increase in a half century. Most of the influx was from young white professionals, and so the percentage of African Americans in D.C. decreased from 60% to just less than half. To help us unpack this change 
and what this change means as well as the history, I sat down this week with George Derek Musgrove, Associate Professor of History and Affiliate Professor of Africana Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And he's also co-author of Chocolate City, Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital, due out next fall from UNC Press. This is the first part of our talk. When we look at the big picture in terms of black economic power and housing in D.C. in the last 50 years, what are some of the important elements that we have to consider? So I think there's two things. I mean, one is that you have to have enough money sort of in the private market just to be able to buy stuff, right? And that really deals with jobs. And then the other is access for poor people to housing in a city that, to a certain degree, doesn't have the same problems of most other post-industrial cities because its major industry is never going to leave the downtown. And that's, of course, the federal government, right? So I'll start with the, the, the jobs part and, and then get to the other part, which is really a hint at gentrification. Mm-hmm. So the, the first thing is that when the city gains home rule in the mid-1970s, uh, African-Americans in D.C. are one of the most affluent black populations in the country. But that really isn't saying a great deal uh, because black folks are, are really overwhelmingly poor in comparison to their white counterparts around the country, right? Yeah. So, so we're rich as compared to other black folks, but we're not rich as compared to the white folks among us with whom we're competing for housing, right? right? And so the, the focus of the Barry administration is to change that. The Barry administration does two things to get more money in black folks' pockets, Mm -hmm. right? The first is that it hires tons of black folks. The the bureaucracy is already huge when Marion Barry gets into office. It's about 44,000. By the time he leaves office, it's about 48,000. But there's a conscious decision on the part of the administration not to trim the bureaucracy, something that was actually something he had considered when he was running for office in 1978. With the realization being that those jobs bolster the black middle class. The other is to tremendously increase the number of black businesses or black contractors by rapidly increasing the number of contracts that black businesses have with the city government. Uh, I mean, the numbers are really quite staggering. This is one of the genuine successes of the Barry uh, administration. Mm-hmm. 1978, when Barry comes into office or when Barry is elected, the city does 7% of its business with black folks and black businesses. By 1985, right before he runs for his third term, it's 35% of city business. And Cortland Cox, his old SNCC comrade, is is in charge of minority uh, business uh, recruitment. And Cortland is absolutely single-minded and ham-fisted in the manner in which he pushes to increase those numbers. Uh, Sherwood and Jaffe in Dream City just say, look, um, there's no corruption here. The deal was on the table. If you don't hire black folks, we don't hire you, right? right. Uh, and that's literally how it went. Cortland, when he first got in, the, uh, in his position in 1979, just said to all of the agency heads in the entire city government, if you can't hire some black people, go look for a new job. Uh, and so that's how they are able to increase the number of black contractors by a multiplier of five. Uh, within just seven years. I mean, that is astonishing. And that puts a lot of money in people's pockets. That allows black middle-class folks to get houses in Petworth, uh, in the Gold Coast, um, even, uh, and for many uh, city workers, uh, in much of the black middle-class Northeast. And at this very same time, 
Prince George's County is opening up to black people. And black folks, black middle class people, like other middle class people in cities around the United States of America, are interested in newer houses, bigger lawns, and better schools. And PG County has all of those things. Really? They had better schools at that time? At that time they did. At that time they did. And remember that the DC public schools are really plunged into crisis by desegregation, right? Black schools are already bad uh, pre-desegregation. They're overcrowded. Teachers aren't getting the resources that they, that they need. And desegregation just ends up spreading that problem to the entire system. And so for a lot of middle-class people who have the choice, it makes sense to leave. And they do. Uh, now, the problem with that, when it, as far as the Barry administration is concerned, is that all of this money that you're investing to create a black middle class then moves beyond the jurisdictional lines that allows you to do all the things that you want to do, right? If you work for the city government or the federal government or have a contract with the city government and you live in PG County, you're taxed in PG County, right? right. So the city's not only losing revenue, but it's also lo losing the people who are the most likely to keep the schools up, to, in, in, the, in the parlance of the time, to be role models to poorer people, although that's deeply right. problematic, right? right, right. Um, and so, so right when the city has put in all, place all of these policies where it could create a class-stratified black population, right? right? and really increase the black middle class and upper class, all those people then have the opportunity to jump the line into Maryland, right? And I keep saying PG County because they don't go to Virginia. They don't really go in the same numbers to Montgomery County, although some do. Right. They really go eastward into Prince George's County. Right. Um, there was a figure late in the 80s, early 90s, something on the order of 80% of the black people in PG County came from D.C., Right? So it is, it is literally an eastward migration. Okay. Right? So, so there's that problem. Right? Then there's the issue of poor people. D.C. has this really bizarre situation where it is always under threat of having a massive influx of reasonably well-to-do people uh, who will uh, upend the housing market as it currently exists. Right. If there's a war, historically... Thousands of people rush into D.C., straining the housing stock, rents go through the roof, poor people have trouble finding a place to live. Right. Um, that happens with the Civil War, World War I, World War II. If there's a dramatic expansion of government, say the New Deal, again, people rush into town, strain the housing stock, rents go up. In terms of a new administration like right now with Trump coming in, is that just part of the normal ebb and flow, or would that be one of these massive influxes that you're talking about? The new administration is really part of the normal of the flow, yeah. right? Because what you end up having happen there is that the old people leave and the new people sort of take right, their right, place. And so, so you, end up, you end up basically at zero. Mm -hmm. Where you really see the difference is when a new administration comes in that intends to dramatically increase the size of government, right? Okay. Um, so in the case of the New Deal with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I mean, they were hiring thousands of people per month at certain points in the early New Deal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the New Deal, specifically the 30s, really fundamentally changed the demographics of the city with uh, governments like the Trump administration, for instance. There's, there's a difference in two ways. One is that we're part of a metropolitan area now in a way that we weren't in the 30s. Right. right. So if you move to D.C., you had to move to D.C. You couldn't move to, say, 
uh, Bethesda or Silver Spring. They're just little towns at that point, right? right? Uh, and the commute would have been horrendous. But today, you can live an hour from here uh, and, and be fine. And, and a lot of people would do that. This is what happens in the 70s along those lines. A lot of young people who had sort of been through the counterculture, when they looked at the suburbs, they, looked at, they saw their parents and they saw the sort of spiritual death of little plastic houses that all looked the same with the same little people coming out of them every day. And they thought, I don't want that. I don't want to be the man in the gray flannel suit to reference a popular movie from the time. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back into the city I'm going to live in DuPont Circle or, or Logan Circle, and I'm going to be among the people, right? And this is sort of countercultural ethos kind of brings people back to the city. And in the 70s, you really see the third massive wave of gentrification wash, wash over the city. There was a wave during the New Deal. Uh, there was another wave during World War II and directly after because of the war itself and then the Cold War. Uh, and then there's another big wave in the 60s and 70s because of the counterculture and also because... Law firms and lobbying operations are expanding very rapidly uh, at that time. And so there's, there's a desire for in-town housing, particularly condos, by young childless professionals. Right? Okay. And speculators see that, start snapping up houses in poor neighborhoods. When the economy doesn't really sort of grow the way they want it to, they just leave the houses, they board them up and walk away. And in places like Columbia Heights, where speculation was, that was really ground zero for speculation in the 70s, um, you see this create a housing crisis. Boarded up houses everywhere, poor black people with no place to stay, even though there are empty houses everywhere, Okay. right? Um, and so, and all of these speculators just waiting on the market. And if the market doesn't come around, fine, I'll walk away. I only spent $20,000 yeah. on the place anyway. It's around that time, actually, that acorn... Uh, started around different cities. I don't know if it was here, but I lived in Philadelphia, and that's when Acorn got its start because of all the abandonment and kind of the whole method to basically be squatters and use yeah. property. Yeah, and and you know the, the the key thing that Acorn understood, and that housing activists in D.C. and around the country, quite frankly, understood that we have forgotten, uh, is that. The, the devastation of the housing market in the 1970s is not the aftermath of the riot. Hmm. The riots didn't happen and then we had a housing crisis because of the destruction. Right. The riots happened, speculators came in, bought up all the houses dirt cheap right after the riot when the market was sort of in flux and people were worried about living in those neighborhoods. And then what they did creates the housing crisis. Right, because right? They, don't, they don't develop them, they sit on them. Yeah, or if they're if they're able to develop them, depending on the neighborhood, right? Um, then they kick all the poor people out. Poor people then have to flood into the adjoining neighborhoods, creating a housing crisis there because there's too many poor people, not enough uh, affordable housing. The city council responds to that by passing a bevy of rent control, um, first rights to first first right to purchase legislation, anti-flipping legislation between about 75 and 82. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that sort of legal edifice that slows the process down and makes it possible for poor people to buy their houses in certain instances. Um, there's, there's essentially a way that you can create a cooperative out of your apartment if it's slated for condo conversion. Mm -hmm. um, and so between the jobs that the Barry administration is, is using to funnel money into the black middle class, mm -hmm. and the protective legislation that the council is passing to try and make sure that poor people can stay in place. Those two things help black folks to gain their little piece of the rock. 
Okay. Or at the very least to stay in their apartments mm-hmm. in the late mm-hmm. 70s going into the early 80s. And then crack hits. And a lot of, all, and, and all of that hard work kind of goes out the window. Nobody wants to stay in these neighborhoods if they have the choice, right? Mm-hmm. For poor people, they're trapped. Middle class people are not trapped, so they leave. The exodus to places like PG County accelerates. In 1988, the year that we first became the murder capital of the United States, we had like 480 or so killings that year. Um, Not a single one took place west of Rock Creek Park. Not one out of 480. You know, in middle class neighborhoods outside of the center city, uh, whether it's upper northeast, upper northwest, those places really didn't see a booming crack trade. It just wasn't in those places. What they did see, though, was uh, the sort of um, ripple effect of their city being dubbed uh, the per capita murder capital of the United States of America in 1988. Uh, And a, 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 a title it would keep for the next couple of years. And there may not be a murder on their street, but there were 480 plus murders in the city, uh, and that does that brings down your um, your equity. That makes it less likely that anyone would want to come into your neighborhood, particularly from people from outside the city who sort of saw the entire city as dangerous. One way. Mm-hmm. Um, now within the city, um, the entire city wasn't dangerous, and people knew it. In that year that we became the murder capital of the United States, 1988, not a single murder takes place west of Rock Creek Park. Not a single one. And so for people who live in the Palisades, for people who lived uh, near Georgetown, the city was dangerous. But when they talked about the city, they weren't talking about their neighborhood. So what numbers do we have? So at some point when during this time continuum, there's still a black majority in the city. Mm -hmm. And because of these different policies by the Bear administration, uh, home ownership rises among black middle class people as well as working class and some lower income people, I suppose. I'm, um, not, I'm not sure about that. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I would assume that it, it rises through the 70s. I can't speak on the 80s. How about instead of rising and lowering, What are we talking about in terms of either percentages or numbers of percentages in the black community in terms of home ownership and where it is now? (laughs) I think that the basic idea is that black home ownership is some of the highest in the nation in D.C. And it, at least by the 90s, it gets up towards 40 percent, I believe. Then there's that big push under Clinton to drive it higher for all Americans. Uh, but particularly for, for lower-income Americans. And it actually exceeds 50%, I want to say. And that's here in D.C.? Yes. Mm-hmm. But the black population is always, during this period, uh, during the, entire, the entirety of D.C.'s history, disproportionately renter as compared to their white counterparts. The Urban Institute just came out with a report called The Racial Wealth Gap in D.C., or something along those lines. The the author is uh, Kilolo Kijikazi, and they actually have specific figures that surprised me. I didn't think that the homeownership rate was as high as it is, 
And I'm not sure if they tell you when it jumped as high as it is now. But, but I, I can at least tell you that through sort of the turn of the century, it's, I don't think it's a majority. And, and certainly in the 80s, it wasn't a majority. When you say turn of the century, this century. The, the, of the millennium. Yeah. yeah, turn of the millennium. Yeah, so, so 2000. But I can't, I can't give you specifics. I'm sorry. But then, of course, when we're talking about gentrification, we're not just talking about black home ownership. We're talking about people in rental housing, like you said. The yeah, we're, I mean, we're talking almost, almost exclusively about renters. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know it's, it's funny. If you, if you look at the, the people who complain, you know, if you look at public forums in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. you look at people who've really been staunch... And I think angry opponents of gentrification, a large number of them have been middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the funny thing about that, if anything can be found to be funny in this conversation, is that those people are the least likely to be displaced physically by gentrification. Look, there, there's ways if you own a home that you can lose it, um, but that typically happens to poor people. Who, who just, you know, were fortunate enough through, through the 20th century, despite all of the public policy that mitigated against their doing it, were able to buy a house. Mm-hmm. So if you look at all these, these, you know, reports about how, you know, there were these scam companies that would buy delinquent tax bills for like 10 bucks, put tons of, buy them from the city, because the city actually had a policy where you could buy delinquent tax bills. Tax bills would be for a couple dollars to a couple hundred dollars. Peanuts, Right. They layer all these fees on top of them for nothing. And then send the poor black people in those houses a bill. If you can't pay up, we take your house. People can't pay up. Right. Right? Or they don't find out about it until it's too late. And these people sell their houses out from under them. And the city finally changed the policy after they were embarrassed by the newspapers finding out that it was going on and they weren't doing anything about it. I mean, these um, stories came out... What, this came out a year or two ago. Yeah. The city just changed the policy, right? But... You know, you look at cases like that, but if you look at the, the absolute number of cases where people's houses are stolen out from under them, it's relatively small compared to the population of homeowners. Okay. Right? Um, when it comes down black to... Black homeowners. Black homeowners. When it comes down to it, if you're able to get a house, unless you're... You're, you're, you're going to be able to keep it through a wave of gentrification. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's people who got their houses stolen from these companies. There's people who got tricked, who, you know, who were sort of led into subprime loans. But generally, if you have a house, you can keep it, right? The people who really get pushed aside quickly and easily by gentrification uh, or by, by just the economic pressures of, of um, well-to-do people moving in right. are renters, okay. right? And so... Usually when, when middle-class people complain about gentrification, what they're complaining about is that the city no longer feels like it's theirs. Or they're complaining about cultural alienation from their new white neighbors mm-hmm. who lump them with all the poor black people. Right? And, or the fear of losing political power, which is particularly important for black folks because, quite frankly, so much, of our, so much of the small amount of economic power that we've been able to gain has been through the political process. Right, with what you just right? described in terms of what Barry did. Yeah, and you know, not only that, but the history that we know is a history in which white people have used the political process to steal from us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so when you look at it like that, you, you understand why middle-class people complain about demographic change. 
and gentrification. But they're not actually talking about being pushed out their houses. Okay. Right? Nobody can do that but the bank. And as long as they stay current, the bank can't really do that in most cases. So when we're talking about people who really have a legitimate beef of being pushed out of the city, physically so, it's poor people, it's renters, right? It's public housing residents um, who are constantly having to deal with cities, the city government and developers demolishing their homes with the promise that they're going to replace them with mixed income units, but messing up the process. Right. right? And, and then there's always the issue of what mixed income is. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, so I think it's, it's really there that you have people who are concerned about physical displacement. Um, and, and so what we're really talking about is the poor, right? Which at, at base is the, the textbook definition of gentrification, right? It is a gentry moving into an area that is historically poor and through their wealth and their numbers, displacing those poor people, either through making it very hard for them to stay or through physically moving them out. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. We'll be right back with more of my conversation about Black Power in D.C. with George Derek Musgrove, co-author of the forthcoming book, Chocolate City, Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital, due out next fall from UNC Press. Stay with us. Family wealth, more than anything else, is a driver of gentrification. You know, keep in mind that the way that a lot of the millennials that are, flood, that are flooding into that, the city, and you're talking about people who from 2009 until 2013 were coming here at a rate of 1,000 per month. Right. Right? Um, the way that many of those people were able to buy their condos and their homes was that they were given money for their down payment from their parents, who in most cases benefited from uh, the discriminatory FHA lending um, policies of the pre-civil rights era, the the uh, pre-fair housing act era. And their wealth transferred through their children allows for a next generation of white home ownership, right? Black folks, black millennials, when they look to their parents, now, they may have income parity with white millennials, right? And in many cases, they're pretty close, right, statistically. But when they turn to their parents for an in-family loan of 30000 bucks, the well is dry, right. right? And so in this competition for housing within the, the contemporary market, black folks are at a multi-generational disadvantage, and so the, the wealth transfers have a huge role, probably the largest role in mm-hmm. contemporary gentrification. Uh, the, the Urban Institute report that came out just a couple of weeks ago stated that white wealth in D.C. is 81 times larger than black wealth. All right? So for every dollar that a black person has across the board in D.C., white folks got 81 bucks. Is there anything else that we, on this subject, that you think we didn't cover? We could probably delve a little bit deeper into politics of it. One of the fascinating aspects of gentrification for me is, is that 
people who move into gentrifiers of, of any race who move into transitional areas, because uh, you know gentrification is not about moving into a working class area to live among working class people. It's it's about moving into a working class area with the idea that that working class area will flip into a middle class area and you'll be able to realize the profit of that change. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested to know if there is a discernible difference in the amount of political activism that people engage in in gentrifying areas. Because through personal experience, I've found that a lot of new residents will get pretty active on their ANC, mm-hmm. their local schools, mm-hmm. uh, and then they'll also share what they've done on listservs, which are sort of a new aspect of this, this wave of gentrification, uh, and almost put out like how-to kind of testimonials uh, for some of the other gentrifiers in the city. And so you'll see in places like Capitol Hill with schools like J.O. Wilson or even these days, minor elementary out by 14th Street or 15th Street, then you'll get a certain cluster of parents who bought into the neighborhood and they are working to accelerate a transformation, right? They'll do things like form block um, associations. They will go and run for the local ANC. And they'll do the things that any good new neighbor should be doing, which is that they pursue their own and the common, what they believe to be the common interests through public institutions that we all share, right? That becomes a problem for long-term residents in two ways. One is that their new neighbors don't necessarily know what their interests are, and unless they articulate them, there's sort of a low-level, undiscussed conflict Uh, that can just sort of erupt around specific issues. And so, for instance, there's bike lanes or Sunday morning parking in places like Shaw, right, where, you know, uh, new white residents would be uh, essentially angry at local churches for blocking blocking people in during Sunday. But the churches have been doing that for decades, right? And I think largely because they weren't talking to each other, there was no way to just sort of mitigate that, right? It was my way or the highway on both sides. Same thing with bike lanes, right? Because bike lanes eliminate parking spaces, and so that flared up just last year. And because there's less of a desire, I think, on both sides to figure out how we create a new community together, primarily, I think, because no one thinks that they're creating a new community. They think that one community is supplanting another, and I think that that assessment would be correct. Then there's no effort to sort of mesh competing interests to to work out competing interests. And because new residents have this really large monetary interest in getting their interests met, dog parks, better schools, because I can't afford private school now that I got this million-dollar mortgage on a row house in Capitol Hill, right? Then they are pushed into the process perhaps a bit more forcefully and are able, uh, either through the retreat of older black residents uh, or the non-participation to dominate that process pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I see that beginning to filter upwards in the city, and it's been happening for, for a couple of years now, but you're really starting to see sort of the harvest of that neighborhood activism. The council is now majority white, and a credible white candidate for mayor just recently challenged our sitting mayor in the last election, uh, Catania. 
And there is every possibility that we could have a white mayor, if it's a really good candidate in the next election, and certainly in the election after that. And I think that that will really, for a lot of people, be the symbolic fruit of uh, the transformation that we've all been talking about for the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Because if you look at sort of the three things that make for Chocolate City, right? Demographic majority, political power, and culture, right? Um, Two of those are already gone, right? The demographic majority is gone. Black folks are in the mid mid to high 40% range today. DC is no longer the center of black culture in the metropolitan area. I mean, I think you can make a good case that Prince George's County, which is really the center of the the local go-go scene these days, is now the center of black culture in the area. The one thing we have left, and and this is, you know, you put an asterisk next to that because there is no black majority on the council, is the mayorship. And, you know, that is... And maybe that's just symbolic, too, if if that office is just catering to the new... Well, there's no question about that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, to, to, I think to be fair about the mayorship, the mayor has not seriously worked to engage in that sort of black power effort of building black wealth since Anthony Williams was elected, right? Um, and that was 1998. Um, Williams was a self-declared new black leader, right? Um, you what know, are some of the things he did? Well, you know, he he want yeah, his no black wealth. Yeah, he didn't build oh. black wealth. Oh, okay. Um, uh, his, I mean, pre him. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so so you know, Barry's time in office is all about uh, maximizing black political power, building black wealth, right? Like like that's what he comes into office to do. Right. Right. So when he leaves, um, okay. when he leaves, and he's really and this is a nationwide phenomenon. This is not a DC specific phenomenon. When, when he leaves, part of the reaction to his absolutely miserable management, he may have had a good ideological agenda, but his execution, particularly in his third term, was just garbage. Part of the reaction to that, to our bankruptcy, to the drug epidemic, right, to city services in certain cases just collapsing, was to give up on the black power agenda of an earlier generation and to say, look, let's just get black leadership in there that can make the city work. Now, the problem with that is that black folks are in crisis, right? They are not only suffering with the remarkable residue of hundreds of years of segregation and disinvestment, but they're also suffering with new problems. AIDS, crack, the Reagan and Bush administration's disinvestment in the cities, mass incarceration, right? So they still need disproportionate help from the state. The only agency, large and powerful agency, that's responsive to their needs, at least in the places where they are a majority of the electorate, Mm -hmm. right? And the basic calling card of the new black leadership is to walk away from that responsibility and say, my only job is to be a brown white mayor. It's to make the buses run on time. It's to make sure the leaves get picked up every fall, Mm -hmm. right? Mm And what that does, essentially, is it leaves in place this remarkably unequal racial society, racialized society. Black people are poor and they stay poor, right? Black people are dealing with mass incarceration and they continue to, right? 
When you layer on top of that, that by making the city work well and by restoring confidence that the city will continue to work well in the future, all of a sudden wealth pours back into the city. It's a racialized society, so wealth is disproportionately white. So white people disproportionately move back into the city. The poor black people who should have been getting that disproportionate extra help from the city and didn't get it are now being swept aside. Um, And I should just point out that Anthony Williams adopted gentrification as financial policy. And he had to. In 2002, he did a study of the city's finances. And the city, you know, had been in the black for, I think, six years straight. And we were even running small surpluses. But when he looked at our long-term finances, he was worried. Because 60% of the people who worked in the city lived outside the city and we couldn't tax their paychecks. Hmm. Within the city itself, 40 plus percent of the land is not taxable. It's owned by universities, embassies, the federal government. And the only way that he could see for us to be able to increase the amount of money we take in in tax dollars as a city Hmm. was to increase the number of well-to-do people who lived in the city. And so... Right after he gets this report, it's late 2002, he goes out uh, in January or February 2003 and he says, I am announcing a new initiative to attract 100,000 middle class people back to D.C. And in 2003, the idea of 100,000 well-to-do people rushing back to live in D.C., was so laughable that the Washington Post ran a short article that said, Mayor Williams, try a really big magnet. I mean, it was a joke. But he was determined. I mean, he's a very, very smart man, right? Brilliant uh, development specialist. And he did all, he passed all of these policies to make sure that people would rush back in, uh, to make sure that developers would build the things that would bring them back in. And they did come. And when they did come, the city never reaches back and revisits that legislation that protects the poor against displacement that was created in the 70s. And so even when that development has essentially achieved its objectives, right, we've got 100,000 plus, 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 right? right? Now we need to slow it down so poor people don't get pushed out. The city doesn't do it. It just stays in development modes, continue to give tax breaks to developers, right? On on that same line... Are there any kind of current gentrification struggles that you've been following? I think Berry Farm is is the the most fascinating current one. With the understanding, you know, the city is essentially saying, look, we're going to knock the whole place down. We're going to rebuild it. And all of you who live here, when we're finished rebuilding it, you are welcome back. Right. Right. And what a lot of the the, uh, organizers are saying is, no, we don't trust you. right? Right. Now, they have a good reason not to trust the city. I mean, you know, the last big case that I followed was Northwest One, which is all of the um, public housing that was demolished just south of Sirsum Corda on North Capitol Street, yeah. across the street from Gonzaga. Right. And all those people were told by the Fenty administration, as soon as we knock this down, we're going to rebuild it, y'all can come right back. And they knocked down low rises, high rises, all through that area. They have since replaced a handful of units and made a big to-do about the handful of people that came back. But the vast majority of people that were in those buildings did not come back, didn't even want to come back, for two reasons. The first is that when the city brokered the deal to uh, 
demolish those buildings and replace them at Northwest One. They dispatched Robert Bob, who was the city manager under Mayor Williams, who sat down for a year with the residents of Northwest One, all of them organized into tenant councils. And they worked out an agreement. It's called the New Communities Initiative, which is the same initiative that the city is attempting to demolish Berry Farms under today. And the residents drove the process because Bob was very responsive to their concerns. You know, some of the people that lived in those buildings had actually been kicked out of their homes in the 1950s when Southwest was demolished under urban renewal. And they landed in those apartments and have been there ever since. And so they knew that when the government comes in and destroys your house, you don't get to go back, right? So they demanded that Bob work in a couple of principles to new communities. One was that you allow people to stay in place while you're building. So you essentially allow people to stay in their building and you only work on a section of the site. Once that section is finished, they move into it and then you go work on the section where they were living just a moment ago, right? right. right? Uh, So it's called the build first principle. They also demanded that the city actually invest money in, in the, the, the social aspects of re- regenerating the neighborhood. So you don't just knock down buildings and build them back up, but you actually invest in the people who are there so that they can make a way as their neighborhood goes through a pretty wrenching change. The Fenty administration abandoned those principles. And once you had a really bad bed bug infestation in some of the, and, and rat infestation in some of those buildings, Fenty just came to a community meeting and said, Y'all can have some housing vouchers, go live somewhere else in the city. We're going to knock the place down, and you're welcome to come back when we're finished. Or you can stay here as is. I'm not, I'm not doing any exterminating. So if I got a bed bug infestation, the first thing I'm going to say is thank you for my voucher. Right? And all the tenant organizers who heard about this meeting rushed and said, don't leave. You will never be able to come back. Folks said, I'm in desperate straits. Um, and so they took those vouchers. The city knocked down the building. And then because they never did the research, they found out that um, the federal government had sort of some restrictive clauses on that land, didn't allow them to rebuild. And it's been a parking lot ever since. What's weird about that is that the, the, the high rise itself was privately owned under a Section 8 contract. Hmm. And so it, was, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even projects. It was surrounded by projects. Okay. Um, but it but it wasn't projects. And if you look closely at that area, you notice that like the like the the Saverna and some of the buildings uh, further west actually did get built. But all those were sponsored by Bible Way Church. So it was the, it was the projects that were specifically being handled by the city okay. that never happened. In about the mid '90s, cities around the country and the federal government as well um, shifted from a state ownership model to a um, the, the model that's sort of embodied in the Hope 6 program, which is that you build mixed use to deconcentrate poverty, uh, and then you allow the upper-income units to fund the lower-income units. And so what you're really doing is unloading this public property into the market, but with very specific clauses that say that specific units have to be offered at, under a, a funding formula that allows for poor people to live there. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially the state will reimburse any uh, private company that's willing to take that on. And in execution, it's typic- that process has just typically um, reduced the number of units available to people. 
Right. Uh, and so what you have is a situation that is beginning to look like the housing market pre-New Deal, which is that the government is no longer the landlord of last resort. There ho- there's public housing out there. There's a lot of it. Uh, the debates about Ben Carson today show you how much is out there. Um, but, but cities and the federal government are doing a remarkable job of unloading it. Um, and that puts poor people in the private market. Now, that with a highly regulated private market, but nonetheless a private market. And that means that costs for the cities are going to remain high because they have to fund that private market. They have to subsidize it. Whereas the number of units available to poor people, it's not going to grow. Whether or not it's going to um, shrink is another matter, but it's certainly not going to grow. You've been listening to my conversation with George Derek Musgrove, co-author of the forthcoming book, Chocolate City, Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital, due out next fall from UNC Press. And now we're going to end this second segment on Black Power at 50 in D.C. with the voice of Detrice Belt, a resident and tenant organizer at Barry Farms, the public housing complex built on land settled by formerly enslaved Africans after the Civil War. Tell me about your struggle right now in terms of Barry Farms and, you know, what that means to you personally. Okay. I'm a resident here in Barry Farms um, with my daughter. She's eight years old, and my mother lives here on the property also. And now we're facing a, a redevelopment, and that means that they want to demolish the whole property, and they want the residents to move to another public housing um, property that could be up for redevelopment also. And so I'm worried that, you know, where would me and my mom go? Where would other families go that we've connected with over 20 years now? We're worried where will we go? What's affordable here in D.C.? Um, So I'm with a group with Empower D.C., and I'm a tenant with the Tenants Association, Bury Farms Tenants and Allies, and we are fighting to for the city to keep the public housing and to um, build in place while we're here on the property instead of them moving us to another public housing property. So how would that work? They can do it in phases. I have like four units in front of me that's vacant right now. I see that they can tear that those four down and build up the new and move me over, do it like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And tell me a little bit about your own experience living here and your family living here. I've been here over 20 years with my mom. I've been in my unit for almost four years. And um, I grew up here. I have best friends here. I'm able to go to work, come home. The highway, the metro is right here near me. It's, it's my home. It's my community. I know the people. It's fun in the summertime. Um, just just out back and with the cookouts, food and family and everybody knowing this location. It's easy for people to park. It's not an issue with like parking. I worry about that too, moving around the city. My friends and family can come and visit me with not, you know, having to worry about parking. And we get together, have cookouts and seeing the ice cream truck come through here and the kids happy playing at pool time. And it's just a a good community. So the picture that you paint is very different from what the corporate media paints about Berry Farms. Usually when we hear about it in terms of the news, they talk, people talk about violence, they talk about just negativity and crime instead of family life. So 
tell me a little bit about, like, because, you know, and they also don't really give the human element in terms of who lives there. Like, people have jobs and they go to work. So tell me a little bit about yourself and growing up in Berry Farms. Um, crime happens everywhere, and in Berry Farms, there was a lot of crime here that I've witnessed over the 20 years, but most of it I came to realize was not even people who lived here, and also just a lot of things that were going on. It was a lot of break-ins, It was, and, and everything came back to it wasn't people that lived on this property, and so I don't, you know, really... Worry and now it's less people living here on the property and it's it's less crime. I'm a general assistant. I know that a lot of people they always say that. I, I read some blogs. I try to stay away from it. I was reading like comments um, that people would say that people there are just looking for a handout or people there are just they don't they live rent free. They don't have to pay anything here. But that is a lie. Um, most of the people who live here work. They work. And it's a lot of people here that have college degrees and cars and um, so people work work really good jobs. Government jobs. Um, they have different fields of work. It's a, it's a lot of people who work on the property. Now, we're here in this really nice recreation center, and I, this is the first time I've actually been here. This is a really nice place, and one of the things that I've heard people say is that they feel that these facilities are being built for somebody else, <laughs> you know, that schools and and um, do do you feel that the city is listening to you and do you feel that they really want to renovate for you and the people you know here? Um, no, I don't think they're, um, they want to renovate for us. I do believe that they planned on this property going to somebody else, not the residents that currently live here. That's why they want to move us off the property and tell us that we'll be able to come back. And the only reason that they gave us for not being able to do it in place was um, the redevelopment. They said that we will be with noise and we didn't want to go through, you know, we don't want you residents to go through like the noise and your water being cut off or your lights being cut off. But yet we had the wreck built here, the Berry Farms wreck. We had Homeland Security built um, around us and we also had a renovation with the the property manager's office was built all this was done and we had to deal with water being cut off electricity so we're ready for it the residents here don't mind if we have to deal with any type of you know anything that's going to we're fine with that we don't mind we can get through it as long as we know that we're going to be in a new unit so this piece is looking at 50 years, so uh, tell me a little bit about the background of your family. Are you all native D.C. people? And tell me a little bit about your family uh, background. Oh, yes. Um, we are, I am born and raised in D.C., and my family, most of my family that I know are have, since I've been little, has been living in D.C. Um, I think some of my family maybe have come from um, Greenbelt, Maryland, or a part of Maryland, but mostly a lot of my family, we live here in D.C. My grandmother, my mother's here, my uncles, my aunts, everybody I know live in D.C. So that's and they were born here. Yeah, and that's another thing. I don't want to like have to move somewhere far away from my family when everybody's here in D.C., so I spoke to a woman last week whose family is also from D.C., and what she feels is similar to what you're talking about. She feels like she's been through a lot here. She says she went through the crime wave. She went through Reaganomics. She went through everything here, and she doesn't feel like now that the city is finally having some success in terms of, uh, I guess, I don't know, 
stability that she's going to be displaced. Do you find that working with the other tenants that they fear that being displaced? I don't think that is really... I think with some residents, it resonates that this is wrong, what the city is trying to do with us, uh, with the residents here in Bury Farms. I think that uh, a lot of people I speak to, they do recognize that this is, you know, wrong, that this is something that, oh, we heard this before. But some people I also know, I don't think that they really see it yet, that this is displacement, it's discrimination, um, and that they want to push black people out of the city. Before you lived at Berry Farms, where did you live before? I lived in Potomac Gardens, and that's also a public housing. So where do things stand right now? What what do you want the city to do? Uh, Right now, we want the repairs in Berry Farms. We have a lot of, while we're here waiting for this redevelopment and whatever is to happen, we have still a lot of units that are needing repairs. Um, people are living. Yes, people are still living on the property and it is a, it's a lot of repairs that we want done while we're waiting for the redevelopment. That was the voice of Detrice Belt, a resident and tenant organizer at the Berry Farms Public Housing Complex in D.C. To round out the second part of our series, Black Power, 50 Years in D.C., 1966 to 2016, part one from last week on labor is posted on our website, onthegroundshow.org, and this will be posted there, too. Join us next week for part three. This series is supported with a grant from the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. And that will do it for us on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. A special thanks to Chantel James, Michelle Roberts, Michael Byfield, and Floyd DJ Wahid Aaron for their contributions to the show. Thanks to our engineer, Michael Nacella. You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can now listen to all of our shows and past shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Verum. I'll be participating in the opening reception for the Black Artists of D.C.'s exhibit at DCAC, the District of Columbia Arts Center in Adams Morgan, tonight. Raise your voice out there. Peace. <laughs>